Good morning, everyone. Um, for those of you I don't know, my name is Kondo. I get to serve as one of the uh, pastors here. And uh, this morning, I get to lead us as we wind down uh, our uh, a series that we've been in. Uh, next week, we're actually going to wrap this series that we are calling Rebuildable. Um, and in this series, we're exploring some truths from the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. Um, And if you've been with us, then you know this to be true, that at the heart of this series is the idea that there is nothing in us or in the world around us so broken that our God cannot restore and rebuild it. In fact, our God is a God who seems to love to rebuild and restore the, the most irreparable things. But as we've seen, one of the truths we often forget is that one of God's favorite ways of rebuilding what's broken around us is through us. And we've seen that illustrated uh, through the story of the Jews, God's chosen people led by a man named Nehemiah, who venture out into a seemingly impossible project of rebuilding the broken and burnt down walls in the city of Jerusalem. These walls had been broken for over 150 years. Nobody thought these walls would ever be rebuilt. It seemed impossible until God, through his people, went about rebuilding these broken walls. This morning, um, we're going to backtrack a little bit and spend most of our time in chapter 3. And you can feel free to turn there, by the way, Nehemiah chapter 3. And we're going to be answering the question, how? How? How did this relatively small group of people pull off that daunting feat? How? How did this group of people pull off what couldn't be done in 150 years in 52 days? How? An eight foot wide wall, 40 feet high, two and a half miles around. How did they pull this off? And I want to talk to us as a church. In this series so far, we've been talking to each of us as individuals and the ways God might want to speak to us. But I want to speak to us more collectively as a church because the answer to the question how in Nehemiah chapter 3 is the answer to the question how. How do we reach 50,000 unchurched people in our county? How? How do we put a dent in the racial tension and divides that are in our area? How do we help to see the percentages of people struggling to put food on their tables decrease? How? How do we we rebuild uh, the worlds of kids who are unwanted, unclaimed, and uncared for? How do we as a church go about rebuilding what's broken in the world around us. And I love uh, Nehemiah chapter 3 because it is the how chapter of this book for those of us who tend to lean into uh, the more practical. And this is especially huge for us um, to see because if you read through the story of Nehemiah, one of the things you notice is there are no overt miracles in the whole book. There's no moment where God parts a sea miraculously. There's no moment when manna falls down from heaven. There's no moment when the enemies are blinded all of a sudden by God's miraculous justice. There's nothing like that in the book. There's no moment where like everyone marches around with a flute and the reverse Jericho effects take place and the walls just mysteriously go up. And so the question is, how did they do it. 
And a number of ingredients, I think, show up in the story. And uh, the first one is so obvious that it's easy to miss. How did they rebuild these seemingly irreparable walls? So the first thing is they loved their city. They loved their city. That's the invisible reality that permeates this entire story from the beginning to the end. Before the walls were rebuilt, the city of Jerusalem was loved. What's true about each person who labored to see this work take place was that they loved this city called Jerusalem, especially Nehemiah. Now, in case you've forgotten this, because it's been a while since we've looked at at Nehemiah's story, Nehemiah is a Jewish slave who's born in the Persian Empire, the most powerful empire on the planet at the time. But he's born as a slave. By the time we meet him in Nehemiah chapter 1, he owns the job title of cupbearer to the king. Now, just in case you thought your job was awesome, cupbearer to the king was another way of saying it was Nehemiah's job to select and to sample and to serve the king his wine. Nehemiah tasted wine for a living. Hated his job, said Nehemiah. Never, ever. This is a pretty cushy gig. But what this also meant was that Nehemiah was one of the most influential people in the world. See, because the king didn't have a cup bearer simply to ensure that nothing but the best wine would ever touch his lips. He had a cup bearer to ensure that poison would never touch his lips. That no one would attempt to ambush him. And to eliminate him by poisoning him. So he would literally watch Nehemiah drink some of the wine. And the king would be like, one, one thousand, two, one thousand. If Nehemiah's still alive, he'd be like, party on. And he would drink the wine. If Nehemiah fell over, he'd be like, all right, bad batch of wine here. New cupbearer, please. New batch of wine. Which means the king explicitly and implicitly trusted Nehemiah with his life. It's suspected that Nehemiah had become a confidant and an advisor to the most powerful man in the Milky Way. So Nehemiah was living a pretty lush life in the city of Jerusalem. And I tell you this for this reason. When his brother shows up and tells him the walls in Jerusalem are burnt and broken, I would expect Nehemiah's most natural response to be, um, who? More wine, anybody. Why should Nehemiah care what's happening in Jerusalem? He's never lived there. It's 800 miles removed from his lush existence. What does that have to do with him? And yet the moment he hears the walls are broken in his family city, in his true home city, this man is inconsolable. His heart breaks over the broken walls in Jerusalem because no matter where Nehemiah lived, he loved Jerusalem. And by the time we get to chapter 3, verse 1, Nehemiah has gathered together around him a group of men and women. And the thing that is true about all of them is they love Jerusalem. You want to know how Jerusalem got rebuilt. You want to know how that city was changed. It was because a bunch of people loved Jerusalem. 
One of my favorite quotes from one of the most brilliant authors of all time, G.K. Chesterton, is this. In speaking about the great empire of Rome, he says this. He says, Rome wasn't great. Rome wasn't loved because she was great. He says, Rome was great because she was loved. In other words, Rome wasn't, men didn't love Rome because she was great. She was great. She became great because men had loved her. I love this quote. You want to know how the city of Jerusalem changed? Jerusalem wasn't loved because her walls were built and she was beautiful. She became beautiful and rebuilt because a group of people had loved her. They loved their city. And can I just talk to us as a church for a quick second? Because here's the thing. Kosciuszko County will be rebuilt and revived because the church claimed her and loved her. Nehemiah was living in the cushy land of Susa, the capital city of the Persian Empire. And yet he loved Jerusalem and therefore he treated Jerusalem like those people are my people. Their pain is my pain. If they're vulnerable, I'm vulnerable. If they're hurting, I'm hurting. Kosciuszko County will be changed when the church claims her and treats her as if its hurt is our hurt, its pain is our pain, its people are our people, its problems are our problems, its meth epidemic is our meth epidemic, its homeless people are our homeless people, the 50,000 unchurched people are our people. That's what we'll see a 50,000 unchurched group of people changed and transformed. And our dream uh, is to see this county living fully in Christ. And if that's going to happen, first we must love our county. And that seems like such an obvious thing to say. But here's the thing. I still hear way too many of us who, who talk like And we treat this county like we are just still a little too good for it. Like we are built for a better place. I'm built for Susa. I'm built for the bigger, most sophisticated city. I'm just passing through, baby. When I graduate from high school, I'm busting this joint. Matter of fact, I'm waiting on that promotion so I can get out of these dumps. We talk like somehow life has sentenced us to a stint in Kosciuszko County. And our hope is that, man, we might just get out early on good behavior. But we are too good for this place. This city will never change if a church is snobby and believes we're too good. We're from Susa, baby. What does Kosciuszko have to do with us? I think there are way too many of us still waiting for Warsaw to become lovely before we love her. She's not yet worthy 
But you know if God would fix her, and so we even think ourselves pretty pious when we, we pray for God to do a miracle and revive this city and revive this county and, you know, real quick fix her and solve her problems, God. And God, would you please, you know, give her a Target Superstore, for goodness sakes, and would you please bring a Chick-fil-A to town and then, woo, we will love her then because she'll be somebody. The problem is, if we don't claim her, and if we don't love her, she will never become better on account of us. Why would you pour in? Why would you invest? You're just going to wait around, and you're just going to whine a lot until she becomes beautiful, and then you choose to love her. Jerusalem was rebuilt because a group of God's people loved her. If we ought to pray anything, we ought to pray, God, help your church love this city and this county because then she might rise. So listen, let me just give you a quick note. And this is arbitrary. This is me just saying this to you. So you can take it um, however. But if you've been here for at least a year or you plan to be here for at least a year, It's time for you to claim this county. It's time for you to love this city. I don't care if you're a college student. You're going to be here for three years, maybe four, six, depending, you know, what kind of student you are. But, you know, whatever. It's time for you to claim this county. Some of you are here, well, technically, I'm only going to be here for 10 months. So I hate you people. Well, listen, this is just a general time frame. I'm giving. Our desire as a church is that we would be a bunch of people who claim love and are for Kosciuszko. Because we believe if this county is going to change, it's going to be because the church first loved her and claimed her. So have you ever decided, have you ever declared, these are my people. This is our pain. Their fate is connected to mine. Have you ever laid claim to it? Jerusalem was rebuilt because Nehemiah and God's people loved her. And because they loved her, watch what happens next. Look at Nehemiah chapter 3 verse 1. It says this, Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred which they dedicated, and as far as the tower of Hananel. Because they loved Jerusalem, they served Jerusalem. They didn't just love their city, they served their city. They worked to see her become better. They worked to see her become more beautiful. And absolutely, you are going to serve what you love. If this county isn't changing, and if this city isn't being transformed, I suspect is it doesn't have enough people who love her. Because if you love, you will serve. Unless you're defining love in a different, more infatuatory way. But because they loved her, they served her. And and that's exactly what chapter 3 is about. Everyone works To make her 
better. And this is so great because it introduces us to this guy, Eliashib. Eliashib is the high priest. Not just a priest, he's the high priest in Jerusalem. Uh, high priest is like he's the Pope of Jerusalem. Don't struggle with the theological implications of that. But he's like the big religious head honcho in Jerusalem. And I don't know if you knew this, but um, priests are bona fide Bible nerds. They're not builders. And yet what Nehemiah tells us is the priest put down his scroll and he rolled up his sleeves and he figured out how to build a gate and a section of wall. Because when you love a city, you will work to make her better. And it's not just Eliashib, the priest, it's other priests. And it's not just these other priests, it's, it's families who jump in and get involved in This, verse 3, some brothers work together. In verse 8, some goldsmiths and perfume makers work. What do perfume makers know about rebuilding walls? It doesn't matter. When you love a city, you will figure out how you can make that city better. The highest level government officials in verse 14 through 18, they got together, took off their suits and got dirty working to rebuild the wall. Businessmen and marketing geniuses in verse 32, they played a part in building the wall because when you love a city, you will serve the city regardless of who you are. You want to know how Jerusalem got rebuilt? A bunch of people loved her and they worked really hard to make her better. That is not a sexy Bible story, but it's a good one. No seas part. There's no manna that falls out of heaven. People just work. And this is so good for us to see uh, because the church often loves to pray for miracles and wait on the Lord. Okay. I'm not saying there's not a time for that, but... um, Have you ever wondered if maybe the reason the broken things around us are not getting rebuilt is because we're waiting on some miracle when we need to be working? I wonder if God isn't a little annoyed with our prayer for revival. Revive this county. God, there are 50,000 unchurched. Would you revive this county? Stop praying and start working. You are my miracle to the 50,000 unchurched. You are the means by which I want to rebuild the spiritually broken walls in this county. Don't just believe for revival. Work for it. I've given you everything you need. You have the gospel in your hands. Put it. To work. When was the last time you shared the gospel? Because we, we love to pray and wait. That's great. But God is saying, build something. Share the gospel. When's the last time you shared the gospel? You can't keep whining about the 50,000 unchurched if you haven't reached out and shared hope with any of them. I wonder if God isn't a little bit annoyed, you know, with us using our skill and our strength as an excuse not to try. I'm sorry. I'm a priest. Um, and, uh, you know, we don't, we don't do that kind of thing. I'm sorry. I'm a business executive. You might not know me, but at my work, everyone knows me. I'm 
a high-level government official. I'm sorry. We don't do that kind of thing. That's not my gift. It's not my skill. It's not my strength. I'm no good at this. Well, listen, you may not get everything right, but I love the fact that people who had no clue how to build walls, who loved the city, figured it out, rolled up their sleeves, and went to work. I think we use our gifts and our strengths as an excuse way too often not to try, not to do something. I wonder if God isn't tired of us using the lame busyness excuse. The highest level leaders in Jerusalem could work, you could work too. Because there's no such thing as busy. Can we just be honest? Stop it. There's no such thing as busy. There's only such a thing as priority. It's really about what you prioritize. And you will prioritize what you love. And if it's to see a city revived, and if it's to see the hurting and the broken in the world around us made whole, then busyness will not be an excuse. I love that parents in this story didn't use their kids as an excuse. They brought their kids along. They said, listen, we want to take a season off of soccer, and we're going to go and, oh, listen, what we're going to do in soccer is we're going to befriend, and we're going to. But there was constantly this sense of working to make things better. This is such a picture of the kind of church that we long to be. Not just trained or skilled or experienced, but everyone loving their city and working to see her become better. And you know how this city and this county will change? Because God's people love her and work to see her hurting kids cared for and her lonely included and a mistreated spoken for and Her marriage is healed and her hungry fed and the lost saved. Everyone working. And I love that. Jesus didn't love the church because she was beautiful and blameless. He loved her and so he worked giving his life up for her to make her blameless. To make her beautiful. And I don't know if you knew this, but God is kind of the king of the world. He doesn't die. He doesn't roll up his sleeves. He doesn't have sleeves. And yet for the sake of a people he loved, he gave himself up. So how are you working to represent him and see our county better? How are we as a church Working. How is this county being built and better because we are here? And I love the video we just saw because that's starting to answer some of those questions. That's why we have Love Ops monthly, work events uh, that take us into the community we love to rebuild brokenness wherever we find it. That's why we just wrap this Love Blitz because we know the miracle of a thriving city will come through a working church. Nehemiah is not a story about God working miracles. It's a story about God's miracle of his people working. If this county is going to revive, it's going to be because a bunch of us loved it and worked to see it become healed and whole. That's why we invite you to serve. And that's why we invite everybody to serve. Because as you serve the church... Um, you help us accelerate the work of seeing a city alive and whole. And that's why we invite you to give, as Matt did just a little while ago. Because as we give generously to the church, um, you get to fuel our ability 
to put Jesus on display in the world around us, to help the most hurting people, the most vulnerable kids. How is this church better because you're in it? Are you working? How's this city more beautiful because of you? How are the lost being reached because of you? Jerusalem was built because people loved it and worked. And again, you can do everything like we said last week and as we've said through the series, but you can do something. Um, you can start with, you know, serving in the church. If you don't know, well, some of you seems like the Lord has given you very clear burdens. I don't know what to do. Well, check our serve page. You can talk to us. We'll put you to work, but don't not work. You can start with the people closest to you. That's what happens, by the way. If we had time to look at the rest of this chapter, the reason Eliashib was building by the sheep gate was the sheep gate is how animals got brought in for sacrifice, which means the sheep gate on the northeast side of the city was right next to the temple. He rebuilt that section because that's where he worked. And so Eliashib had a vested interest in the people and the place that was right in front of him. If you're not sure where to start, start with the people uniquely close to you. Who's hurting in your dorm? Who's hurting at your school? Who's working in your cubicle? Who's hurting there? Who's hurting in your home? But they worked. Imagine if for one week, every single person in this room said, I, I will share and I'll show Christ's love, you know, in my area, in my section. I'll do something. I can't even imagine what would happen in 52 days in this city. Um, but there's one more thing, and I want to invite some guys to come out here in a second, and then we'll, we'll wrap. Um, I went to watch a, a movie with uh, a friend uh, a few weeks ago, and at the end of the movie, same thing happened that happens in every other movie I've ever gone uh, to see. Screen goes black, um, and the theater empties immediately, just vacates, which made me think, why do filmmakers insist on putting these credits at the end of the movie that they know nobody cares about and no one sticks around to read? Although I Yes, I suppose if you're going to put them somewhere, better to put them at the end than in the middle of the movie. But I digress. Um, as much as Nehemiah chapter 3 is a how-to chapter, Nehemiah chapter 3 is also a who-did chapter. It's kind of like the credits of the book. Nehemiah chapter 3 is rolling the credits to the book. It's that chapter that would be tempted to just walk out on. It's the chapter that would be tempted to just kind of fast forward through. Because it's just a list of name after hard to pronounce name with what they did. And then a name and what they did. And then another name which I find so entirely compelling. Because every good screenwriter knows you don't put a throwaway scene. You don't put something that nobody cares about in the heart of the story. And yet here is a bunch of credits that are in the middle of the story. Which either means God is a really bad screenwriter. Or it means in his economy, the credits matter immensely. And I would vote for 
the latter. Nehemiah chapter 3, and this is what I want you to hear. Nehemiah chapter 3 is a reminder to you. It's a reminder to us as a church that the broken walls were rebuilt by a group of people who loved their city and who served their city to make it better. And heaven took note. Heaven noticed what they did. That is so compelling to me. That God made sure a bunch of names nobody would usually care about made it into the middle of a beautiful story. It's heaven's way of saying nobody else might care about the work you're doing to see this city rebuilt. Nobody may see the things you do behind the scenes, but heaven is taking notice. I love that about this story. The way you serve and the way you give generously may not be applauded here on earth, but in heaven, some angel is laughing at your name because your name is hard to pronounce and it's funny to them. But the point is it's been recorded because it matters immensely in heaven what each person is doing to help what's broken around them. And so you may not be in this service, Erica Edwards, but the way you're teaching our kids to worship, heaven is takes notice. Cindy Bradley, you may be sitting in this room. She helps volunteer for our guest services. And how you help people feel loved no matter who they are and no matter how badly they messed up last night when they walk into this room, heaven notices. And Jake Petey, I know you're in this room. The way you teach our fifth and sixth graders to love him, heaven notices. Joseph Nishimoto, the way you make life so fun for middle schoolers and high schoolers, heaven notices. Eric Squires, who was playing his electric guitar back here, the way your kid was in the hospital and you still came to serve, heaven notices. Ryan Berger, the way you're making a safe place for kids to come and be developed and loved through sports in our community, heaven notices. Rob Spencer, the way you're going to go into the next service and sing songs to our little children and play games with them when nobody else knows or cares, heaven notices. And the walls are being rebuilt. Sarah Herring, the way you tell stories in Kids Point. Tim McCarty, who's parking cars in the freezing cold with his team. He's not here because they've gone to get ready to park the next group of people. Heaven notices. Abisha Gross, the way you hide behind the scenes and put things up on the screens. And, you know, Brad Goodwine is back there today. Heaven notices. The work we do is not a waste because the city is being changed and heaven is taking notice. And by the way, in that spirit, I want to invite out um, some men that you may not notice, but heaven notices, who are making a difference in this church um, behind the scenes. Men who love you, men who pray for you, men who long to see this city uh, loved and to see this city served. And so I do, I want to, for some of you who may not know who our elders are, we're going to take a couple of minutes and invite them um, out. So if those of you who are sitting elders currently want um, to come out, it'll be good for uh, the folks here to know who you are. Um, this young, handsome gentleman, this is John Barrett. Um, why don't you guys step into the light? Um, 
John Barrett, you might know as the guy I make the, f- the most fun of whenever I have an opportunity, but he is one of our elders, one of your overseers. And uh, Gabe Koser, um, one of your elders as well, his wife is on, on staff. Uh, we prefer Gabe. Um, Doug Haynes, who, you know, many of you uh, might know, um, his wife Carrie has been part of our children's ministry for um, a while, and then Matt Duell. Uh, these are the men who serve behind the scenes uh, to love you and care for you. And in the spirit of Nehemiah chapter 3, I'm thinking we want to run some credits, and we want to give you guys some practice because there is coming a day when even though nobody else noticed what you did, heaven is taking notice and this city is changing because of the role you guys are playing. And so thank you so much, and you can thank them because uh, they're pretty, uh, pretty awesome guys. Um, all right, that's not, not that awesome, but I want to, um, I'm kidding, they're fantastic, but want to invite, uh, man, there are some men that we want to include to the elder um, team, and if you guys would come on out, I um, would love to introduce you to, um, to our church family here, so Stan Hepler was an elder, and uh, he took uh, a sabbatical. It's a whole financial embezzling thing that we don't have time to talk about. <laughs> I'm kidding. We're so thrilled to see him uh, take some time. He has served since the church had launched. But Stan is stepping back in um, in a desire to serve as an elder, to love you, to care for you, um, to help lead and serve you as we together love and serve our um, our city. Mike Taylor, many of you have seen Mike up here as he's taught us, um, has been such an influence to Matt and I, you know, um, just loving us well, um, long before we asked him to consider being um, an elder. And then Jeff Glock um, here on the end, you've seen Jeff even though you don't know it. These guys serve behind the scenes to welcome you, to, to pick things up, to hither and yon, whatever it takes. Uh, they've been part of a, a team that's been serving you. Now, uh, one of the things in particular about these three men is obviously as Stan Hepler steps back in um, to the eldership team, and as we consider Mike um, Taylor and Jeff Glock to be part of the, uh, the team. We do need your help. Two things. Number one, pray for these guys as we continue to evaluate them, as we continue uh, to consider them. Um, the second thing is if you have concerns about these men, we would love to hear those from you. So feel free to email uh, me um, at any point with that at matt at missionpoint.net. Um, no, you can email me, condo at missionpoint.net, or you can email matt at missionpoint.net, because we're in the process of evaluating and including them so that together we can serve our church more effectively, and as a church we can serve our city uh, more effectively. So um, even as we wrap the service, I'm just going to ask if Doug would pray for these men, and then we'll be dismissed. But thankful for these guys and their willingness to serve even more, to see us reach our city. Heavenly Father, uh, we just ask you right now, Lord, that you would bless these men uh, who are evaluating uh, for eldership, Lord. I pray, Father, that they would love the person of Jesus, that Mm. they would run after him above all else, Lord, in their life. Um, And Father, we pray that they would also have the heart of Jesus, that they would um, be committed to seeking and saving the lost and Mm. to serve this body, Lord, faithfully. And lastly, Lord, I pray that you'd give them wisdom 
Lord, you say that you will grant it if we ask. And so, Father, we, we are just beseeching you, Father, that you'd give not only them, but the rest of us wisdom, Lord, as we serve this body, that you would be um, uh, proclaimed, Lord, that, uh, that you would be honored in all that we do. Um, and we commit them to you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.